But, you know, today, this month, actually, as we approach the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation with all of the, the articles and the, the books and the conferences that are beginning to be generated, it's, it's critical for us to ask the question, what was the Reformation really all about? Now, we could, we could make maybe a, a good case that it was primarily about the doctrine of justification by faith alone uh, or about the primacy of biblical authority versus the claims of the papacy. And, and admittedly, though, it wasn't ever only about only just one thing, but you guys won't stay here until 7.30 tonight, so I could tell you uh, all the other stuff that we could say about it. So, so just for the moment, just for these next brief moments, I want to borrow a thought uh, from Dr. Joel Beakey, who's the president and professor of systematic theology and homiletics at Puritan Reform Seminary, who, who said this on the subject of the Reformation. He said, one key concern of the Reformation that is often forgotten is its revival of a Reformation of the heart, or as John Calvin would call it, biblical pietis, or piety of the heart, particularly as laid out in Paul's first letter to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 7 that we covered last week, uh, which says, have nothing to do with uh, irreverent and silly myths, myths, rather train yourself in godliness, which is right where we pick up Paul's train of thought today in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, as the apostle continues uh, to lay out in very practical and real-world terms just exactly what that means. And so uh, open your Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And not a particularly long chapter, but I'm going to read you the whole thing. So uh, follow along, 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows." 
Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sin of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the faithful witness, the faithful writing of this letter from the Apostle Paul to young Timothy. We ask, Father, that you would lend us today in these next few moments your Holy Spirit, uh, that the words that we've read may be written on our hearts for our good and for your glory through Christ our Lord. Amen. So if you remember from uh, the last several weeks, Paul's been writing to Timothy about the importance uh, of the eternal internal structures of the gathered church, uh, and then basically beginning to detail what that meant to, to live that out, which brings us today to some very practical instructions that very likely... Uh, have implications for our own personal lives at home and definitely have them for us collectively as a church as we seek to live out the, the pietas uh, that both Calvin and Dr. Beakey wrote about in their expositions of the letter to Timothy. And, and in my opinion, I think those things that they talk about break out into at least three main headings that form the title of this sermon, and those being civility, secret sins, and the second death. So civility, secret sins, and the second death. But first off, civility, which has been defined this way. Uh, Civility is about more than just politeness, although politeness is a necessary first step. It's about disagreeing without disrespect, seeking common ground as a starting point for dialogue, staying present even with those with whom we have disagreement, and negotiating interpersonal power such that everyone's voice is heard and no one is ignored. That's a good definition. But it's also why Paul wrote, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him, as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And one commentator said of this, Because it is the duty of ministers to reprove such of their people as error in principle or practice, and because the success of such reproof depends in great measure upon the manner in which it's given, the apostle here proceeds to direct Timothy in that all-important branch of his office. Uh, Because church is no fun to rebuke or to correct or to give unsolicited advice to any of you. Uh, Heck, if I'm honest, it's not even fun Uh, to give advice that has been solicited. But that's one of the major things that you hired me for. Uh, And even if it wasn't, it's my God-given responsibility to do it. And and honestly, it's me who will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account if I fail to do that. And so 
like it or not, I'm going to keep doing it. And my goal is, my, my hope is, my prayer is that I will always follow Paul's advice to Timothy here uh, and do it without being a jerk in the process. But I am far from perfect. And there's a flip side to this. There's a flip side, there's a balance to that, that you all as a congregation have to be willing to at least hear it, to, to hear biblical correction because it comes from Christ and from his word, which is perfect, even though I am not. Uh, and honestly, nowhere in the Bible does it say it has to be fun or overly pleasant for either of us. Uh, in fact, the Bible expressly says, uh, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And, and I've said this before uh, as well a bunch of times. You know, if, you, uh, if you're able to come to this church for more than six months, and you never feel convicted or stretched in your faith or challenged by doctrine or, or like you've been poked at or had your toes stepped on, uh, either I'm not doing my job or you're not really listening. <laughs> Amen, somebody, right? Uh, but, but the type of civility that the apostle is advising for pastors here and by extension uh, for people extends also beyond that to the very practical matters of how we as a body take care of one another. And so he writes, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own households and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And, you know, I was hoping she was going to be here today, but uh, we have a very dear uh, widowed lady among us that many of you know uh, who's been the recipient of that kind of kindness, that kind of loving care that the Apostle Paul speaks of. We have Miss Doris that's normally with us and will be with us for a while, uh, who's been being lovingly cared for by her family uh, until their home, just like he shared, was made uninhabitable by Hurricane Ian. Uh, when another one of our dear ladies of the church, also a widow, uh, Miss Linda opened up her house to her here in Zephyr Hills so that Miss Doris has a safe and welcoming place to stay while the things at her house are resolved uh, with that flood damage, however long that takes. Uh, and I think their, their stories combined together lay out a really lovingly example uh, of exactly what the Apostle Paul has in mind as he's writing to Timothy because boots on the ground civility and Christian hospitality are not an optional extra part of the Christian life. They are a clear command of Scripture. And I think it's only right to, to commend you, Miss Linda, and, uh, on how you've kind of pulled this all together in the midst of a very difficult situation, uh, and not just because I love you and want to give you a pat on the back, but to follow Paul's example when he said, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Because, you know, church, it's good, and it's encouraging, and it's even challenging to see the point of these passages that we read being enfleshed in the very real lives of very real everyday people that we know. Because, uh, folks, for the most part, now not, not always, but for the most part, families don't take care of families anymore. Uh, if they did, there wouldn't be so many nursing homes. And now, don't mishear me. Obviously, obviously there are situations where uh, you know, because of someone's physical or 
mental or emotional state, they have to be placed in a residential facility for their own safety or for the safety of their families. I, I totally get that. And I'm not talking about that at all. So don't send any letters to Joe me in the office saying, you know, pastor is down on nursing homes and he's criticizing me. Uh, no, it's not. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but the truth is that way more often than not, families want to shuffle off all the old folks to a home so they don't have to be bothered with them. Uh, and I've done enough nursing home ministry in the past to know what I'm talking about. And it's a shame. And not only is it a shame, it's a sin. Because as we just read, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so in other words, if you are not somehow actively involved in caring for your parents and your grandparents as long as they are alive, uh, you are worse than a pagan in the eyes of God. And that's not me saying that. That's the word saying that. And this is serious, whether you believe me or not, because, you know, there are plenty of people out there who will tell you, they'll say things like, uh, believe things like, you know, God doesn't get angry with people. God never gets mad at folks. Uh, they're wrong. The Bible is crystal clear in Psalm 1711 that God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. Which leads me to heading number two of secret sins, as we read about today in verse 5. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Geneva Study Bible puts it like this, Let widows that live in pleasure and neglect the care of their own families be held and considered as fallers away from God and his religion, and worse than unfaithful themselves. And, and so Paul here is warning Timothy to pass along this warning to individuals in his congregation in Ephesus, just as God had warned the prophet Ezekiel to address his flock in the Old Testament, when he said, if I warn the wicked, saying you are under the penalty of death, but you fail to deliver the warning, they will die in their sins, and I will hold who? You, responsible for their sins. You see, in the Old Testament, a sinner left unwarned would be regarded as a murder victim, and the murderer would be the pastor, the, the watchman, the shepherd, who had been assigned to warn them but failed in his duty. And so Paul tells Timothy today, uh, as we read, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And so unfortunately, whether I like it or not, if God shows me someone uh, who is in spiritual danger and for whatever reason I chose not to speak up, uh, if I don't pass along that warning, then a measure of that guilt is laid at my feet for which I will be called to answer. Uh, and I'm not going to do that. Now, certainly the responsibility, of course, of obviously the burden for believing the gospel is on the individual. Right? The Bible makes it perfectly plain that it is individuals who are judged for their own sins. But church ministers are charged as watchmen, as under-shepherds of the great shepherd, with the responsibility of warning sinners of the impending judgment of God. Which is why Hebrews 13, 17 says, Two congregations have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. And do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. Right? 
See, that, that's the other side of this, that if God tells me to warn the lost and I pass on the warning and it's just ignored, there's no benefit for the hearer. And then as it says in Ezekiel, if you warn them and they refuse to repent and keep on sinning, they will die in their sins, but you will have saved yourself because you obeyed me. And so for, for myself as your pastor, or, or even for yourself, if you share a, a concern in love with someone who's fallen into persistent sin, if we warn them uh, and those who are lost but don't listen, um, we're not responsible for that other person any longer. I'm only responsible to God to share the warning. And, and don't mishear me. Now, this is, this is not me wanting to get all up in your business and know everything that goes on with you every minute of the day. Uh, this is not having to do with the day-to-day -day sins that we all fall into. Uh, all of us fall back in our Christian walk regularly. But we repent, and we keep a short account between us and the Father when it comes to making confession. But what Paul is emphasizing to Timothy was the grave danger of a person who claims to be a believer, a person who darkens the door of the church almost every time that it's open, uh, an individual who stands up and says, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, who slips into the rut of sin, but instead of seeking a way back out, doubles down and just says, hey, I, I think I kind of like this. I think we're going to keep this up. <clears throat> because, church, what happens to a path that gets traveled on over and over and over and over again? Yeah, that's right. The rut turns into a groove. And pretty soon it's all but impossible to steer back out of it. And ultimately, as we read last week, people begin, as the Bible says, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared as with a hot iron and setting in that crease of sin. And so we need to speak up, and we need to speak out, and we need to point out sin where it begins to take a foothold. And like it or not, none of us gets to pick and choose which parts of Scripture get preached or which ones we share. And not, please don't mishear me, not because I want to walk around with a 10-pound Bible and bonk people over the head with it. Right? But because, as Paul said, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. But you know, either way, brothers and sisters, the consequences of blatant, willful, intentional sin are deadly serious. And the prospect of living death that Paul makes reference to is no joke. Because as much as the worldly church uh, may preach it, and as much as we may be even tempted to want to believe it, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is really a Christian. That's why the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, they went out from us but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But when they left, they proved that they didn't belong with us. And he writes elsewhere in the book of Revelation, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so, church, the idea here, and it's a, it's a promise, really, whether it's from Paul's admonition to widows not to live and let their own loose living lead them to walking death, or Ezekiel's warning to be faithful watchmen over other souls, or the cautioning visions of John's apocalypse, the reality of only having to die once is one of the greatest promises that we Christians have. 
And if you think about it, all of Scripture really confirms for us that in the final analysis, you're either born twice and die once, or you're born once and die twice. And it's really very simple if you think about it. Meaning if you are born again, if you have experienced the second birth by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will only have to endure the singular experience of physical death. And then you'll live forever in the blessedness of God's kingdom in a resurrected body. But if you're only born once, if you're only born into the world of humanity and you are never born again by the Holy Spirit of God, you will, you will experience not only the death of the physical body, but you will experience the second living death of eternal punishment in hell. Uh, because no matter who you are, uh, death is not the end of the story. It's not the end of your story. Uh, it's not the end of my story. We're just going to move on from one state of existence to the other. We're just going to pull up stakes, as it were, and move on, as, as we read in 2 Corinthians, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, and, and Paul adds parenthetically in case you don't know what he's talking about, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And church, the time to prepare, the time to get ready is now. It's today. Because the Bible says in Acts 17, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now, now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead, Jesus Christ. And so I call on you today in his name, uh, to you who the Spirit will give ears to hear and to use you who he won't. Uh, repent and believe the gospel. So that when that day comes, you might find yourself by God's grace, counted among the pure in heart who hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because brothers and sisters, Christ is coming back. And so I urge you in his name today, live out your life, whatever portion of it you have left for him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the, the faithful word and testimony of your apostle. We thank you, Father, for uh, the good news, and we thank you for the warnings. We thank you for uh, your word that uh, warns us to stay on the, the narrow path. And so, Father, I ask that you would send out your Holy Spirit today to carry this message uh, to those who need to hear it. We ask you, Father, that if there's even one among us who doesn't know you as uh, their Lord and Savior, that you would surprise them by the power of your presence, that you would open their eyes and hearts and minds. And Father, we ask that you be with us as we go out this week, uh, that we can share your gospel with a world uh, that is desperately in need of hearing it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.